Good morning. Our Old Testament reading this morning is in Isaiah. It's chapter 44, verses 1 through 5. You can find that on page 604 in the Bibles we provide. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who forms you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jesse Run, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. And our gospel reading and sermon text today is John 4, verses 1 through 45, and that's on page 888 in the Bibles we provide. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, for he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. This is the gospel of Christ. Well, good morning, Cedar Springs Church. Uh, I was so excited to hear this uh, Senior Pastor Search Committee report this morning, as I'm sure you were, and I think at 7 o'clock on Thursday morning, 6 o'clock Central Time, I'm going to be joining you in prayer that the Lord continues His grace toward this great church. It's a pleasure be here, to be here again this morning, especially with your way above average children who once again are displaying the, the glory of the gospel even for youth this morning. Uh, thank you for having me here. We're in a series where we're looking at the way that Jesus deals with sinners like you and like me. And we are amazed and delighted to see how kind and gracious he is. And we're delighted to see that he saves people like you and me, not only in the very moment that we become believers, but throughout the rest of our lives. We've looked at the woman with the flow of blood. We've looked at the paralytic led down by his four friends. And in both of those cases, Jesus compassionately healed both of them. And now we have this remarkable story in John chapter 4 that Gretchen read. It is loaded, and I only need about three hours to get through that text, so if you'll be very patient. Now, we'll finish on time, Lord helping us. We'll look quickly at the text and try to take its essence home today with us, that every one of us, whether we're believers in Jesus or not, might benefit greatly from the Word of God that has just been read. I have a friend, I'll call him Bob. He's a liberal Protestant pastor, and we go out to lunch on occasion, and I don't know why he keeps asking me. I think he's just fascinated to have an evangelical friend. I know why I keep going out with him, because I'm trying to lead him to Christ. So we get together for lunch on occasion, have very interesting discussions, and eventually, of course, the conversation will come back 
to the heart of the matter, which is my business. And if you're a believer, it's your business too. It's the ultimate agenda is that our friends may come to know the fullness of life in Jesus Christ. And on one occasion, I, I just rediscovered how different the uniqueness of the message and ministry that we have as evangelical Christians. And if you're not one today, I want you to know how it came to me. We were discussing international work and some international issues. And I asked Bob, I said, are you all involved as a church internationally? He said, oh, yes, we are. We go to these places in Africa and some in Asia. And I said, can you tell me what you do? And he told me, I said, how would you uh, differentiate your work from the work of the UN uh, agencies or the Red Cross uh, or the Peace Corps? And he said, well, not, not really. We wouldn't distinguish that so much. We're partners with them. And I said, well, in that case, I imagine that for the mission that you're trying to carry out internationally, you would never send one of your young people at the risk of their lives, would you, to do the work that you're doing internationally? He said, oh, no, we would never... We would never do that. We love the peoples of the world and want to serve them, but we don't want to risk the lives of our own members. Well, I walked away from that lunch realizing there's something to this evangelical faith because absolutely I've asked hundreds, yea, thousands of young people in my life to go to fields in the world where their lives are at risk and even the lives of their spouses and children. There's something to this evangelical faith that even demands our life. And this morning, I want you to notice where it all comes from. It comes from the Lord Jesus himself. John is clear to show in his gospel that Jesus is the life of the world and that he first of all came for the Jews. And if you'll look back in chapter 3, John shows us how Jesus dealt with his Jewish brethren. Nicodemus is a classic case. Here is a man in chapter 3 who is a Pharisee, very well trained. Jesus calls him the teacher in Israel, so he seemed to be one of the chief rabbis in the entire land. And Jesus shares the gospel of the Holy Spirit with him and tells him how anyone who's really a believer, who's really a child of God, is one who's been born a second time. And Nicodemus is massively confused and says, How does a person do that? You get back in your mother's womb and get born again? Jesus said, you're the teacher in Israel. You don't understand this? No, it's a spiritual birth. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit giving you a new heart and recreating you, Jesus explained, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You certainly can't enter it. So Jesus deals with the high and the mighty. He deals with the insider, the classic insider. I'm sure he he could have been a member of Cedar Springs Presbyterian. You know, he grew up learning about the Bible and all the rest. And Jesus has something very uh, important to share with him. But then you'll remember that immediately following that text in John 3, John goes on to say, and perhaps Jesus himself was saying it, that God not only loves the Jews, but God so loved the world that he gave his own son that whoever believes in him will not die, will will not die eternally, will not perish, but will have everlasting life. For John said, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. The world was condemned already. We're already under a curse. No, he sent his son to save the world. 
Now we come to John 4, our text today. And before we break it down and look at what Jesus is teaching this woman and all the Samaritans, I want you to notice what Jesus is doing. If you'll look in verse 4, and if you don't have your Bibles open, you might reopen them because we'll make several references here to the text. In verse 4, John says they had to pass through Samaria. Do you see that text? Scholars have scratched their heads at this because you don't have to pass through Samaria to get from Jerusalem where Jesus was with Nicodemus back to his home in Galilee. In fact, it was the normal Jewish custom not to go through Samaria. And the reason it was the Jewish custom not to go through Samaria is because these two people groups were at odds with each other big time. In fact, it's not the same thing, but there's a parallel. If you look at how the Jews and the Palestinians are getting along now, you know, Palestinians live in Samaria now. How are they getting along with the Jews, would you say? Not very well. Well, there was at least that level of hostility between Samaritans and the Jews. Here's why. Samaria is historically the same geography as the northern kingdom of Israel. You remember after Solomon, the kingdom was divided, and the north had a king and the south had a king. And if you'll read the history of the northern kingdom, of their 22 kings, there was not one good king, and there were a bunch of really, really bad kings. Because of the northern kingdom's disobedience before God, eventually they were taken into exile and occupied by the Assyrians, who were a bloodthirsty, vicious people. They came in 722 BC and conquered the northern kingdom and took off all their elite, all their educated people, their political leaders, their wealthy people. They took them all out of the country and left the peasants, the poor people, then the Assyrian people came in and occupied the land and began to intermarry with the northern Jews. Well, you know as well as I do, if you're a Jew who has a legacy in Old Testament religion, you've got a genealogy, and it normally does not include a whole bunch of Gentiles. You have to prove that you belong to Israel. Well, the Samaritans, then called, had completely lost their their legitimacy because they were intermarried. They were what the Jews called half-breeds. Now, let me add to the problem. You remember the southern kingdom who did have some good kings. Maybe a third of the kings were good. Most of them not so. But because of their disobedience, they also were exiled 140, 150 years later, 586 BC, by the Babylonians. God had promised them they would be able to return in 70 years, which is exactly what happened. And in 70 years, 516 BC, they had reconstructed the destroyed temple in Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah comes in the next century to rebuild the wall, but the temple was rebuilt. Now, during that time, the Samaritans, being cousins of the Jews now, offered to help rebuild the temple so that it would reunify the Samaritans with the Jews and they have one nation. And the Jews rejected their offer and said, you'll have nothing to do with the rebuilding of this temple. So that furthered the hostility and the division between the Samaritans and the Jews. What subsequently happened was that in the northern kingdom then, the Samaritans said, okay, you want to play ball that way? We're going to build our own temple, which they did on the famous 
Mount Gerizim. You'll remember from Deuteronomy, the curses were issued from Ebal and the blessings from Gerizim. And Gerizim is right near the capital of Samaria, Shechem, which is called Sychar here in this text. And so they put their own temple on Gerizim. And to this day, some people worship a false god on Mount Gerizim. Well, the plot thickens. You will remember that in the second century BC, the Greeks ruled over all of Palestine. You remember what they did. They put in a, a statue of a false god in the temple, the Greeks did, and they offered pigs on the altar. It was an absolute blasphemy what they did. So the Hasmonean family, the Maccabees, rose up and rebelled against the Greeks and reestablished the temple, purified it. Thus, we have the ceremony of Hanukkah, which remembers this in 165 BC. So the temple's restored in 165. Now, as part of the religious renewal, the Hasmoneans also went north into Samaria and destroyed their temple. You think they're friends? These people despise each other. That's the reason that a normal Jew would never go through Samaria. Because to get their dust on your sandals made you unclean. They wanted nothing to do with it. So instead of going through Samaria, if you're leaving Jerusalem after a religious feast and you're going back to the northern area of Galilee, you go down the mountain, go west from Jerusalem, down to Jericho, and then up the Jordan River Valley up to Galilee. You avoid Samaria altogether. But verse 4 says he had to go through Samaria. You know why? Because of divine necessity. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is for the whole world. And you all at Cedar Springs know quite well, it's a big world with 7.6 billion people out there. 32% of them profess Christ. And of that 32%, probably only a fourth of them, demographers tell us, actually know Christ savingly. So we're now down to 7.9% of the world's population that seem to know Christ personally. That's one-twelfth of the population, about 600 million people. We've got a huge task to perform, and the reason we do it is because of what Jesus did here. He had to go through hostile territory. He had to go at the risk of his life and reputation. He had to go through Samaria, and he was going to take his disciples with him and risk their welfare as well. Now, when he goes, we're going to see why there's something to this. Why is it that Jesus is the internationalist? Why is it that he sends his disciples all over the world with this message? What, what is it about this that's unique? Well, I want you to see four things. In verses 1 through 15, largely speaking, we're, we're flying at 30,000 feet, and we're going to stay there. Verses 1 through 15, you're going to see that Jesus shows this woman there's more to life than what she had. And that's the first thing you've got to grasp this morning. That if you're not a Christian, there's more to life than what you have. Secondly, when you look at verses 16 through 19, you're going to see that something is wrong with you. No matter who you are, something profoundly, foundationally, fundamentally is wrong with you and with me. Thirdly, when you get to verses 20 through 26, we're going to see that there's something you need to know and believe. 
It's foundational. It's essential. It's core beliefs. And we'll see what that is, verses 20 through 26. And then when you get to verse 27 through 45, we're going to see there is something that you must do. So here is what makes this something special. This is what makes the gospel unique. Let's look at it, verses 1 through 15. There's something more to life than what you have. Now, when Jesus goes to Samaria, he's not only crossing cultural barriers and religious barriers. Ladies and gentlemen, he's crossing what was considered to be even ethical mores. Remember, it's the sixth hour. It's noon. That's what the sixth hour is in that form of telling time. You start first hour is when the sun comes up at six o'clock in the morning. And now it's sixth hour. Jesus has been walking probably for six hours in the hot sun, and he's thirsty. He's human, and he's at the well. And the amazing verse is a woman of Samaria. It's one thing that she's Samaritan. The other is that she's a woman. Here's why. If you go to the Middle East even today, especially in the smaller villages and the countryside, if you're a man, you never look at a woman, and she certainly never looks at you. And you certainly do not start a conversation with a woman who's not in your family. That's considered highly inappropriate and, in, and intrusive. There's a big gender gap uh, in, in the Mideastern culture, and there was in Jesus' day. You don't just walk up and talk to a woman because she's, she's only with her family. Furthermore, a woman always travels in company. It, even to this day in the Middle East, you'd be quite silly if you're a woman to travel alone because you're seen as either irresponsible, foolish, or you're looking for some activity. So you always travel with a group of women. Why did this woman not travel with a group of women? Well, we know because of her reputation. She was shunned. No woman came to the well at noon, in the middle of the day. It's too hot. They come early in the morning, get water for their family, or they come in the evening or both, and they come as a group. The reason she came at noon is because nobody wanted to be with her. And she didn't want to face the exclusion and the marginalization. So she comes at noon by herself. The most remarkable thing in the text to begin with is that Jesus spoke to her at all. In fact, she's amazed at it. She says, you're a Jewish man. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you talking to me? It's highly inappropriate. But he talks to her because he loves her. And he's got something she doesn't have. And he wants her to have it. He says, he opens the conversation with her, would you give me a drink? I'm thirsty. And this is unusual because Jews would never drink or eat from the same vessels that Samaritans use. It's unclean. And the only way he can drink is with her vessel. So he says, would you give me a drink? She said, why are you talking to me? And he said, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink not of this well water, but of living water. Now, we read from Isaiah 44, Gretchen did, and we saw that in the Old Testament, water and salvation are used interchangeably. Water is a symbol of salvation. And God says, I'm going to pour water on your dry land when I come. The great day is water. It's salvation. And then he goes on to say, you remember in the text in Isaiah 44, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon your children. So the water represents life and salvation, and it represents the Holy Spirit. 
That's the reason that in John chapter 7, Jesus says to the crowd, he says, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John comments in verse 39 of chapter 7 and says, he was talking about the Spirit. So the water represents the Spirit. Jesus says to her, on this Pentecost Sunday, it's it's appropriate for us to be talking about this. He's not talking about his death to come on the cross. That's another part of the gospel. He's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, which is part of the gospel. And he says, if you knew me, you'd ask me for living water. She's confused, just like Nicodemus. She says, living water? You mean like in a stream where the water's flowing? Can you give me this water so I want it to come here at noon all by myself? And Jesus says to her, this is living water that gives you eternal life. And you notice at the end of the text, she's asking him for a drink. Look at verse 15. She says, give me this water. She is drawn in. She doesn't know a whole lot and she's confused. And maybe you're confused as well. And maybe you don't know a whole lot. Here's the question. Are you coming to him? Are you pursuing him? Are you following him with what you know? This woman found out that He had something she needed and she didn't have it. And I discovered this years ago when I was a non-Christian and I was convinced somehow not only to go to Sunday school one Sunday, but to go to church too. And after Sunday school, a 35-year-old woman came up to me. I was a 25-year-old young man, an unbeliever. And she said, are you Sandy? I said, yeah. I said, who are you? And she said, I'm Judy and you're going to my house for lunch today. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm going to my house for lunch. Uh, I have, you know, uh, I have two children and, uh, they, uh, they need to be fed and so on. She said, I got everything, all the equipment you need. You're coming to my house. I said, yes, ma'am, I'm coming to your house for lunch today. And uh, she was the Sunday school teacher's wife. The Sunday school teacher was John Wood's brother. And that's how I got to know John 45 years ago. So Bill and Judy took me to lunch, and I'll just give you the bottom line. I drove away from that house after lunch, and I realized they have something I don't have. And that's what started my quest. I want to ask you, don't you know that you don't have what you need? Don't you know that life is empty without Christ? Have you not discovered this yet? This woman knew her life was empty, and she was ready to pursue. Now, it looks like Jesus changes the subject in verse 16, but he's not. He's getting ready to communicate the second important thing, and that is you've got to know something's wrong with you. So he says to her, go get your husband and bring him here. She, she's thinking, I'll give him the quick, you know, airbrush blow off. And she says, oh, I don't have a husband, which was true. She didn't lie to him, but she was putting him off. You think you can hide? Think again. Jesus said to her, oh, you're telling me the truth. You don't have a husband. Yeah, I know. You've had five husbands and the man you're living with and having sex with right now is not your husband. And she said, I perceive thee to be a prophet. (laughs) You old timers know the name Becky Pippert. She's still alive and teaching uh, conferences and writing books and so on. Over 45 years ago, she was a campus worker at Stanford University and she went on the dorm, the ladies dorm, and she was asking them to come to a Bible study. And one of the girls was named Lois. True story. And Lois said to Becky, I'm quite sure that your Bible 
has no relevance for my life at all. And I'm an agnostic, not even sure that God exists. Well, to Becky's amazement, about four Bible studies later, Lois came to the Bible study. Great. And she's sitting right left of Becky. The text for that day was John chapter 4. What you don't know about Lois is that she was living with her boyfriend. So this is going to get interesting. So Becky, feeling the tension of a 25-year-old campus worker, she's got it all arranged in her head now. She says, okay, because they normally read the Bible out loud, each person takes a paragraph. So Becky had it in her head, just like I divided the text, she divided it, and she thought, if I start right here, four paragraphs, Lois won't have to read, and it won't be embarrassing. So she looks to the woman to her right, and she says, Sally, would you please read the first paragraph, verses 1 through 15? What Becky didn't realize is that Sally has an identical twin who came to Bible study for the first time. Sally was actually sitting right next to Lois. This was her identical twin that Becky called Sally. So she said, Sally, would you please read the text? And Sally started reading the text, and Becky goes, oh my goodness. (laughs) So verse 16 and 19 end up with Lois. You're right that I have no husband. I have five husbands, and the the man you're living with now is not your husband. And Lois just stopped and gasped, and she said, my, this has more relevance than I was expecting. <laughs> After the study, Lois goes up to Becky and said, Becky, I'm, I'm moved by the way Jesus deals with people like me, and I'd like to know more. And Becky shares the gospel with her and then says to her, Lois, is there any reason why you wouldn't receive Christ today? And Lois says, no, I can't think of one. And Becky said, I can. What's that? She said, Phil, the man you're having sex with outside of the bonds of marriage. Becky said that the next day she's never seen a clearer picture of repentance in her whole life. Never seen a better picture of someone who gets life than when she saw Lois with suitcases under her arms and on her hands, walking out of her apartment. And the girls said to her, Lois, are you leaving home? And here was her response, no, I'm coming home. I've met the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. Ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing worth having Jesus in the rearview mirror. There's nothing more important than having him and the fullness of his spirit in your life. We have a problem. It's called sin, and Jesus is the answer. Now, thirdly, if you look at verses 20 through 26, it looks as though she's changing the topic, of course, which you would expect her to do after what Jesus said. But really, it's a very important thing, she says. She says, now, you folks in Jerusalem, you say that the real temple and where we should worship is in Jerusalem. But you know, we, us folks here in Samaria, we worship on Mount Gerizim. We've got our own temple. Jesus doesn't flatter her. Jesus doesn't airbrush issues of truth. Because I'm telling you, what makes the evangelical message unique is that it's uniquely true. And the Bible is true. There are other religious books. And we respect all people, but we don't respect their religions. At most, there can only be one true religion because they 
they mutually contradict each other. You may have a bunch of false religions, that's possible, but you can't have a bunch of true religions because they're mutually exclusive. At the most, you can have one true religion, and Jesus is bold to say, you all have been worshiping what you do not know. In other words, you're worshiping in ignorance. The Jewish people have been worshiping according to the biblical standard that the temple be in Jerusalem. But then he went on even more importantly for us today to say, but now neither of those are relevant. The hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. In other words, the temple is the people of God. So we're not looking for the resurrection of a temple on the holy hill in Jerusalem, for heaven's sakes. We're looking for the new heavens and the new earth. And we are the temple of God. He's filled us with his spirit. The Shekinah glory is over the church of God's people. That's the temple. And the hour has come, says Jesus, when, when both your hill and our hill are irrelevant. And so much then for all the fighting over sacred space by these religions. Protestant religions are Protestant Christians, evangelical Christians are unique in this sense. We don't have sacred space. We're sacred space. It's in our hearts that the Holy Spirit dwells. We're looking for the new sacred space that will come at the end of time, the new heavens, the new earth. Jesus makes this clear to her. And then she tries to brush it off and say, well, you know, yeah, we, we have our differences. You know, when Messiah comes, he'll straighten this out. And then he gives her the most important message. The one who is speaking to you is the Messiah. Ladies and gentlemen, this is at the heart of this message that must go to the world at the risk of our lives. People must know the Lord. And they must know that he is the Lord and he is the Messiah. Because Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Other religions are hopelessly lost and in darkness, only through Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus taught her. There's some things you must know, that there is truth and there is falsehood. There is true religion and false religion, and there is one way and one Messiah, and he's the one speaking to you. Now, lastly, you see in verses 27 through 45, there's something we must do, and she did it. She was not John Calvin. She was theologically confused. She didn't know very much. But here's what she knew. She had an encounter that she deeply suspects is the promised Messiah. That's what she knew. And she went and told everybody. And here's the way she put it. She didn't say, you know what? I think this could be the one who's going to fulfill the hypostatic union between deity and humanity. I think he's the one who's going, who fulfills the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. No. She went and just simply told what she knew. He told me everything I did. And they said, everything you did? <laughs> yes. Could he be the Messiah? He told me everything I did. This was an amazing encounter. You see, you don't have to be John Calvin either. You don't have to be Billy Graham. Do you have an experience with Jesus Christ? Have you met him? Do you have life? You have a testimony, and that's all you need to make a joyful noise out in the world. And I'll tell you how we know someone who really knows Christ. They're taken up with him. They talk about him. He's at the center of everything. Oh, yes, we fail and flunk and have our problems and frailties and sins and failures. 
But he's at the center of everything. He's, he's our, like we sang, he's my all in all. He's all I have. And you can't help talking about someone like that, and she can't either. Now notice what happens. She goes as a faithful witness of the very limited knowledge and experience that she has. And look what happens. A whole bunch of people believe that she's on to something. There's something to this. She does not lead them to eternal life. She leads them to Jesus Christ, who then leads them to eternal life. And you'll look in verse 42. Now they are fulfilling the very purpose that Jesus has in coming to the world, that the whole world may know him. And here you have these alien, hostile Samaritans who are saying in verse 42, he's the savior of the world. That's John's point. This is our task. Notice that she simply went to her friends and family. And you Gentiles largely here, you just go to your Gentile friends and family. You'll be doing a good job. You just go and tell them about your experience. You tell them there's something to this. There's something more to life. There's something wrong with us. There's something we need to know and believe. And then there's something we need to do. This is exactly what Jesus was teaching them. So Lois became a believer. And it was really clear. And Becky rejoiced in it. But she rejoiced even more when a few days later, three more girls in that dormitory came to know Christ because of Lois. And she rejoiced even more when three months later, Phil became a Christian. Because of one thing, Jesus Christ goes to sinners like you and me. He gives us life. And we can't stop talking about it. And in his providence and his design, he has other people out there who are going to come to him and be drawn to him because of you. It's really odd at the end of this text, we're told that Jesus then goes on to Galilee after spending two days with these Samaritans. And then the text says, he was not honored as a prophet in his own country. So you'd expect he wouldn't go to Galilee because he's not honored. And maybe you feel like you're not honored very much either. Here in Knoxville, Tennessee, or with your own family, or in your workplace, or with your friends, or in your school. In fact, people scorn you because you're a Christian. They scorn Jesus. And that's why he went. Why did he go? If he's not going to be held in honor... Why didn't he just wipe the dust off his feet and be done with them? Here's why. He loved them. He loved them. He didn't love the respect that he wanted from them. He wasn't looking for their respect. He was looking for their salvation. That's what Jesus is looking for. What are you looking for? If you knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink of eternal life. And when you drink it, you'll go out and tell the others, I've met the Messiah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful account revealed for us in your word. We thank you for this woman who was the outcast of all outcasts. She was in the wrong country, doing the wrong things, 
hanging out with the wrong people. And you came to her because you loved her. Help us to love her as well and to love everyone like her, that we may be your messengers to a world that desperately needs to know you. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.